This podcast is for general educational and entertainment purposes only and should not be considered medical, practice management, legal, investment, or other professional advice. No one should act or refrain from acting based on this podcast without obtaining appropriate professional advice. We need more young people interested in challenging and changing the healthcare system. The U.S. healthcare system, as you and I know, and everyone listening to this knows, is far from perfect. And as the quote goes, we're all going to become patients someday. And we certainly know a lot of folks who have been patients, we treat patients. But even if you've been on the other side where you've been a caregiver or a patient yourself, you understand the complexity of the current system that we're working on. Welcome to Gastro Broadcast. I'm your host, Dr. Michael Weinstein. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Lindy Gull, who leads the healthcare practice with Tapestry Networks, which brings together leaders to learn from one another, explore new ideas, and collaborate to solve problems working across the public and private sectors. She co-directs the Inflammatory Bowel Disease Shared Value Initiative, a collaboration with providers, payers, industry leaders, patient advocacy organizations, and others to explore how consensus-based value frameworks and enhanced learning platforms can accelerate value-based care and new alternative payment models. Prior to Tapestry Networks, Dr. Go led teams at the Boston Consulting Group, working with biopharma, payers, and providers on strategy, organizational and operational transformation, and to address issues in innovation, quality, and access. Dr. Go received her doctorate in biology as a Howard Hughes Medical Institute Fellow at the Center for Cancer Research at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. Dr. Go, welcome to Gastro Broadcast. First of all, thanks a lot, Michael, for inviting me on this. Uh, love to be able to do this and, and communicate more broadly about the work we're doing. I, I really have had fun. Uh, we've had a couple of meetings, um, been on some things, and I'm really excited about the work that we're doing in IBD. But uh, going back, what sparked your interest in healthcare? That's uh, a good question. I think, you know, having listened to some of the other broadcasts you've done, it seems like everyone's kind of known that they've always wanted to be a doctor, <laughs> quite a few of them. I think similarly, I've always known that I've been deeply interested in biology, how we work as biological beings. I started out studying genetics. I moved into cell signaling, which underpins a lot of both normal and abnormal development, as you know. In fact, uh, it's when normal cell signaling goes haywire that you get things like cancer and uh, you know inflammatory diseases like IBD. So healthcare as a whole is fascinating, um, and maybe this is where I diverge a little from the physicians that you interview, because I see healthcare as covering many facets of many industries. Uh, the need for innovation in treatments and drugs and services, how we deliver that treatment. So that's a consumer side of healthcare. You know, how do you how does the patient experience uh, the treatment and what are their outcomes? How does one communicate to patients? There's challenges of infrastructure, supply chain, IT issues. So it's really wrapped around some of the other kinds of industries that are out there. So I like to tell people, if you go into healthcare, you see all facets of other industries, and it's just super fascinating and and more interesting than any other industry. In the end, healthcare is about using science and the art of medicine to really help and improve and save lives. So there aren't too many industries that can really say they do that. 
I certainly agree with you. I uh, have enjoyed my career immensely and uh, looked at healthcare as a way to apply uh, knowledge about in my background in engineering and the work in business, but again, all focused on making uh, patients better, making lives better. Uh, in your work, you've, you've focused on strategy, organizational and operational transformation, and addressing issues in innovation, quality, and access. Uh, tell us why these uh, issues are so important in healthcare and what the trends you're seeing in healthcare development for uh, future, future services. Oh man, that's like multiple conferences rolled into one, right, <laughs> Michael? So I think you and I and many of the folks who listen to this broadcast understand that the biggest challenge in healthcare is the rising cost of healthcare for all. Not just financial costs to patients, employers, payers, and clinical practices, right? You have financial costs too, but also the administrative burden and burnout of healthcare providers, which we've been seeing so much um, you know, talked about. It's also a cost. And the big theme that continues, you know, as a trend uh, that we hear all the time is the need for equitable access of healthcare for all. So how do we get quality healthcare to more people, um, you know, more affordable, more sustainable healthcare? And underlining, um, underlying or really undermining maybe all of this is how the U.S. healthcare system is so fragmented, how there's so many players with very different agendas. It makes it very difficult to drive innovation and improvements. I think everyone points to that, you know, I think the old saw that it takes 17 years for research evidence to reach clinical practice. Everybody always nods at that one. <laughs> um, and I'd like to contrast that with other industries because I've worked in other industries, um, which is, for example, remember the iPod came out in 2001? Do you remember that? Oh. It was a big deal. And yeah, just this year, I Apple said, you know, they're going to sunset, you know, the, the, the iPod. And, uh, and then in 2007 was when the iPhone came out. People don't remember this, but it's, it's within, you know, it's not that long ago. And from 2012 to 2020, American smartphone users went from 35% of Americans to 85% of Americans. So within eight years, pretty much the majority of Americans have taken up a totally new technology, right? That has changed how we work and how we do things. So we can get grocery deliveries overnight from Amazon. We can get personalized music lists on our phone, and yet we're still doing healthcare pretty much the same way we've always done healthcare. But there's hope. We've seen in a crisis such as what we've seen in the pandemic where telehealth took hold. Well, telehealth has been around for years, right? It's not a new thing, but it took the right incentives during the pandemic to increase its utilization. So we can shift how we work in healthcare and we can get to innovative approaches more rapidly than 17 years. It just takes alignment of organization and operations, you know, that question you asked me at the beginning, to really get there. So while the U.S. has a fragmented health system, it also provides an environment to let thousands of flowers bloom, lots of experiments to happen in healthcare, right? Every healthcare site can do however they, their approach to healthcare. Um, that's the positive side of our, you know, fragmented system. But in the end, and you asked me about trends, you know, one of the trends that come down was with all these experiments, it really comes down to, is this new approach to how you're doing healthcare sustainable? Um, if you're a practice, can you pay your staff? Can you keep the lights on, you know, using this new approach? Will the payer support it? Can the patient afford and access it and follow through with care? Because it's not just access, it's also compliance with that care. 
And how do we know that those outcomes that you say in doing this new way of healthcare work? Is there data or evidence to substantiate those claims? So the trends that we're seeing are really to drive new approaches to healthcare that answer those questions. While digital approaches to healthcare are increasing, in the end, the real question is, do any of these approaches, digital combined with how we're doing it on the ground, really effectively change clinical outcomes for the practice, for the payer, for the patient in a positive way? You know, I'm in a very big practice, and one of the things that we now have the ability to do is to compare the way we practice with uh, other people. Um, I remember paper charts. Oh, yes. And by the way, that was only 10, 10 years ago, where half the practicing gastroenterologists were on paper charts impossible to determine how one person practiced versus another person practiced, how we ordered things, how we took care of patients. Um, The explosion of electronic medical records now gives us this incredible capability, but it's also allowed us to sort of see incredible variation in care. This huge range of doing the same thing or taking care of similar patients And now we see that the variations in care really then create huge variations in cost and variations in outcome. Um, So last year, with Tapestry Networks, you convened this IBD Progress Summit to explore some of the challenges in IBD care. Certainly an area where we see huge variety and ranges of options different medicines, different outcomes. Um, Tell us about what you learned at the summit and maybe what you uh, think the outcomes will be from that effort. Sure. So, Michael, um, you know, it'd be great to hear your thoughts, too, after I give my thoughts, since you were there at the summit, too. But all the stakeholders, which as included payers, patient advocates, clinicians and industry and others, confirmed what everyone listening to this broadcast and you, Michael, know very well about IBD, that it's a really challenging disease area. These challenges included um, a lack of alignment on value-oriented endpoints, uh, definitions of patient risk, uh, dealing with a heterogeneous patient population that requires sophisticated risk stratification that, as you noted, are currently uh, experiencing high variability of care, and a lack of underlying incentives for innovative approaches to support what people really feel is needed for the patients, which is a value-based care approach for them. There's a lot of agreement that focusing on earlier preventative interventions and improving care coordination among the variety of clinicians who play a role in IBD care. Uh, These would include primary care providers, community GI practices, IBD subspecialists, support professionals and ancillary services, such as psychologists, social workers, and nutritionists, you know, coordination around all of these earlier um, with a patient could also enhance quality and value. And so there was a really strong interest around stakeholders to trying to move that forward and address it, not just state what the challenges are or restate that, because if you go to anyone, they'll always tell you what the issues are. But really what's interesting, I think, for the community is how do we move forward in that and so what, um, you know, to your point on the question on what outcome could come out is to establish more consensus-based principles, um, some sort of framework that both payers and practices could use as a foundation for new approaches to value-based care in IBD. So instead of every practice trying to reinvent it, 
and doing you know similar things? Is there a way we could put all those lessons learned and create something that a select group of payers and providers could put out there and say, could this be a starting point for people to have a discussion? Could this strawman on IBD value care be a way to start agreeing on what are the relevant outcomes, metrics, and potential payment models um, to help in- create the right incentives to move this forward? Well, I, I have really enjoyed working in that uh, in that group of people. Uh, so so many great ideas. I think personally, for me, um, as somebody who's taken care of IBD patients for many years, is there's a range of what is considered good outcome. Right? Is it is it the total cost of care? Is that certainly an important outcome? But what about patient well-being and life satisfaction and things like that? Um, and historically, the way that we've been able to assess IBD patients have been at a particular point in time. So we use Crohn's disease activity indexes and Mayo scores um, and uh, you know measures that tell us what a patient is doing today. But um, one of the things I really enjoyed in that summit was the notion that we could create a predictive measure, uh, predict uh, what would happen to a patient based upon their individual experience, where they are, where they've been, and be able to predict. Um, one of my favorite sayings uh, in my, with my partners is, uh, making predictions is difficult, especially about the future. Uh, Yogi Berra-ism. Um, and the possibility that we could develop a predictive measure of risk for poor outcomes would then let us apply treatments and options and services to create a better outcome for a subgroup of patients without having to apply everything to every patient, particularly for those who may have low risk of developing complications. So that is one aspect that I really put a lot of hope in that we can actually do that and that thereby decrease this wide range of care options and maybe narrow it down not not a spike of treatment options but a range of but a a smaller range so that the outcomes are more consistent so i've really enjoyed that work i am looking forward to further working with all those people and with you on that so uh moving on uh, how will the inflammatory bowel disease shared value initiatives help us accelerate value-based care and new alternative payment models because if we're going to be able to do this if we're going to hopefully save money how can the practitioner potentially develop an alternative payment model what do you see as the uh, relationship of your effort to working with payers and things like that yeah good question michael Um, And maybe I'll just lead with, um, you know, Tapestry's value is bringing together multi-stakeholder groups to cross-educate, collaborate, and solve problems in a safe and candid environment, the kind of environment that you've seen in the summit. Um, And we do this across payers and providers and industry and within healthcare. So, uh, So that's helpful because one of the comments people have said about our work 
Uh, just getting back to, you know, how can providers work differently with payers is, is there's usually a very antagonistic relationship between clinicians and payers and industry and pharmacy and PBM. And what people have commented on seeing our work and, and being part of these discussions that we've been having in this IBD Shared Value Initiative is more of a collaborative, how do we move forward kind of approach because we're exploring this and we're learning. And the payers have, have really created a sense of openness that they want to learn about IBD. They want to understand what makes this patient population different and the treatments different in this chronic care. And really, you know, I'm going to be very candid here. It's it's not necessarily that the payers are interested in IBD per se, because they're not IBD experts, but they're really interested in it as understanding how does one manage a chronic specialty disease and are those elements something they could scale and really learn from for other chronic specialty diseases. Um, in fact, it's really interesting. I s- spoke to someone recently who said, you know, while IBD is seen as the subspecialty, in some sense, a lot of diseases are like that. Um, and how, you know, we need to get a handle around this and understand how do we do things differently and pay for Betty care in that. Because I think payers, very much like clinicians, understand that working in the status quo it doesn't work well. Um, and, and that's something I think uh, it's what's driving, I think, the, the, the interest to collaborate on this going forward. So we have brought a group of small, uh, a small group of clinicians across different sites of care from community and private practices, from academic centers, from GI and IBD specialists, and a range of payers uh, representing self-insured employers, commercial plans, uh, both regional and national, to co-develop and co-author this consensus framework that we hope, uh, as Michael, you've seen, inc- includes these kinds of new predictive functional um, you know, metrics uh, to be thought about. And it's really a point, a discussion paper to start uh, for you know, everyone to look at. We're hoping to put it in a peer review journal and have it publicly out there to really start a discussion for practices and payers who are really looking to create alternative ways uh, of working together. Um, And actually, we're going to be quite practical because we really all operate in a fee-for-service environment still, right? So we're hoping to um, that this consensus framework will actually give suggestions in a fee-for-service, like how can we layer over that, as well as thinking really innovatively beyond a traditional fee-for-service kind of environment. Could you really create a uh, total cost of care or even elements, not even the full total cost of care, take elements of that and already start moving forward on that. And so really to start that discussion, again, so that folks don't have to reinvent the wheel and could this framework be a start? And one thing I wanted to emphasize, because people have been a bit nervous about this, it's like, well, what are you guys putting together (laughs) going forward is, We acknowledge all the research and work that's been done by societies out there, by the AGA, by the ACG, by other, you know, other large groups that have been working in this, uh, by the foundation, um, you know, Crohn's and colitis, uh, patients groups, et cetera, out there. So we're acknowledging and recognizing that and using that as a basis moving forward. So we're not throwing out what's good. But to your point, Michael, we're trying to create a way moving forward that reduces that variability because everyone's picking elements. And even I think the, you know, the, the, the AJA has done measures that said even after the guidelines come out, there's a lot of variability of care still. It's hard to get that compliance because the incentives don't necessarily align for practices. And also, you know, there is an education component uh, across payers and the clinicians themselves on how to move it forward. So hopefully this would be a start for that discussion. 
um, and it's a collaborative, it's a co-joined, co-authored piece between the clinicians and payers. Uh, so hopefully, you know, this will be a different kind of discussion going forward. Um, and from the payer, I think, side, they hope that perhaps these elements around IBD could be ported to other kind of chronic care and inflammatory conditions. Um, you know, could it be a wheel and spoke kind of model? Could the infrastructure be somewhat similar, but you change elements, you know, around the spoke? Um, and that would really get to scalability because, as you all know, this is a small patient population for payers compared to, say, diabetes or cardiac care or something like that. So how, it, how you can scale a framework for IBD to other areas is what will make it more practical, I think, from, you know, across the different payer perspectives. So let me stop there. But Michael, I'd love your thoughts on it. And well, I think you, uh, I don't you. know if you had a chance to see the framework, actually, because I think we sent the draft framework around. Yeah, I'm uh, looking forward to those discussions. And I think it's great to have at the table, the not just the providers and the data scientists and patient groups, but the payers, the employers. Um, this is very a complicated group of people, patients, who do end up uh, costing you know, billions of dollars. Um, and you would like to think that there's a better way to, to do things and to invest now in certain treatments that will create cost-effective outcomes in the future. I have a little bit of a bias maybe against uh, some of the payer mentality, which is uh, they're, they're very short-sighted. They're playing a short game. They're playing the game of cost for, you know, 2022. But they're not thinking about the costs in 24 and 30 and, and you know, many years from now. Where... What about those costs? If we invest a little bit, a bit of money now, can we save millions of dollars later? And it and it's a, a little bit of thinking out of the box because maybe it's not more drugs or more surgeries. Maybe it's more psychologists and more nutritionists. And how do we pay for that today to get to get the success in the infinite game, the long game? Uh, so I think it's great to have everybody at the table to discuss that and to hopefully think the long game and, uh, and understand that it is it can be very worthwhile to spend some money today uh, and reward people for putting in place better systems so that in the end, patients end up better, the community ends up better, the provider ends up happy, and we actually save money. Um, that's that's what I really like about this. I hope to be able to see it come to fruition. And I think we're, you are very, you are very much along the way of doing that. And as you said, if you can build that sort of model in IBD, then maybe you can do a similar model in some other chronic disease uh, that is very expensive and uh, you know impacts uh, other patient populations. So just getting back around to the uh, beginning, you know, you're, you're in healthcare, we're doing all these exciting things. We know we have a lot of younger uh, listeners and uh, people who listen to our podcast. Uh, any advice for 
younger people at the beginning of their career? I would say it's worth it. And um, healthcare encompasses many different aspects, particularly now there's even a you know much more digital and data component too. So if you're interested in that side, uh, as opposed to you know the hands-on you know patient interactions and surgical interactions, there's a range of jobs in healthcare. So what I'd say is we need more young people interested in challenging and changing the healthcare system. The U.S. healthcare system, as you and I know, and everyone listening to this knows, is far from perfect. And as the quote goes, we're all going to become patients someday. And we certainly know a lot of folks who have been patients, we treat patients, but even if you've been on the other side where you've been a caregiver or a patient yourself, you understand the complexity of the current system that we're working on. And I think, you know, to your point, um, despite the biases, you know, having worked with payers and industry and pharmacy and clinicians of all sorts and types, everyone is really trying to go for that quadruple aim, you know, which is, uh, you know, reducing costs, but maybe a better term, which I like better rather than reducing costs, is really creating sustainable costs uh, because there's always going to be costs um, going up. In fact, the more we treat people, likely the more costs may keep increasing. So how do we ensure sustainable costs maybe going forward? How do we improve population health? How do we improve the patient experience and the patient outcomes? And how do we improve the care team well-being? You know, that whole point about physician burnout and clinician burnout and caregiver burnout. Um, and I, I include, by the way, in the care team well-being, not just the physicians, but the caregivers of the patient, too, because I have to tell you, there's burnout on that end, too, <laughs> in dealing with, with our healthcare system. So I think COVID, for example, has shown us how fragile our systems can be on one hand, you know, the breakdown of our healthcare. But on the other hand, the pandemic has also shown us how resilient they can be. Uh, data has shown us that practices that are set up for more value-based approaches, and this is work done by the government, by CMS and studies with pri in primary care and ACOs, uh, actually did better on, under COVID as their investment into their infrastructure, into their outreach, the monitoring, uh, their data gathering, their IT systems, and their ability to manage their patients under these more value-based kind of payment models just really sustained them much better under the pandemic, under a real huge pressure on our healthcare system. So there's hope, I, I would say, that moving into these new approaches can benefit everyone. And uh, health equity remains a huge issue. And getting back to you know, encouraging young people of coming into this, I think one part of addressing health equity we don't talk about as much is that more young people from a diversity of backgrounds need to become clinicians and practice administrators as patients really want to see a care team that's reflective of their own lived experiences. So really, we need a diversity of, of young folks coming in um, to really address that health equity issue too going forward. Uh, Lindy, so tell us more about where we, where people can find out more information about the work that you're doing and where there's more information about Tapestry Networks. Thanks for asking, Michael. Appreciate that. Um, so all our work is public, which is kind of interesting. Uh, it's either published or on our website. And uh, people can just go to uh, the Tapestry Networks website, tapestrynetworks.com, and find everything that we've done in IBD, as well as other value-based uh, care approaches to other disease areas. Um, Lindy, I want to thank you for your time. Thank you for uh, joining us on Gastro Broadcast. I will see you soon. Well, thank you so much, Michael, and I very much appreciate uh, you inviting me. Look forward to hearing it. 
Thank you for listening to the Gastro Broadcast. Find new episodes through Apple, Google, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast fix. For information about our hosts, guests, and supporters, visit gastrobroadcast.com. Produced by Steadfast Collaborative.